in the U.S., we like to feel confident that our state and federal agencies are dedicated to protecting our health from problems like radioactivity in our food and water. But then you consider that there have been more than 75 years of radioactivity problems at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in southeastern Washington state, and you hear from an investigative reporter who covered these problems, and she tells you, Washington state officials, at least in the early days, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, were almost completely stymied. They couldn't even go on the nuclear reservation without signing a release. The scientists of the Public Health Service who studied releases in the Columbia River were muzzled when radioactive oysters showed up at Willapa Bay on the Olympic Peninsula. They were censored from letting the public know. At every level of the health agencies we like to think of as protecting our health and our environment were stymied from telling the real story about what was going on at Hanford. Well, when you hear about that being the kind of obstructionism faced by those agencies that are trying to protect us from nuclear dangers, it's no wonder that here we are, every last one of us, still stuck in that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, We talk with the author of a book on the human damage created by the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, where plutonium for the Trinity test in New Mexico and the Nagasaki atomic bomb were manufactured. This polluted the area downwind and created calamitous health problems for people who lived in that area downwind of its releases into the air, land, and water. We'll talk with Tricia Pritikin a Hanford downwinder and attorney who collected the stories of others who faced the devastation of Hanford, and journalist Karen Dorn Steele, whose reporting led Tricia to discover the terrible truth about what happened to her and so many others. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than was even considered by Congress in the past week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 26, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. As we were completing post-production today, this late-breaking story. Members of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists have unveiled this year's deliberation on the symbolic doomsday clock. It was again set to 100 seconds to midnight, unchanged from the 2020 finding, which marked the highest level and the latest time ever since the clock was devised in 1947. The group's experts found that the threat to humanity's survival 
is considered to be just as bad now as it was last year. In U.S. news, New York State has sued the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for refusing to listen to the state's concerns before approving the sale of the Indian Point nuclear power plant to Holtec, a New Jersey decommissioning firm. The lawsuit, filed in Washington, D.C. Appeals Court, challenges the federal agency's denial of the state's request for a public hearing before it approved Entergy's agreement to sell Indian Point to Holtec. The lawsuit also challenges the NRC's decision to allow Holtec to use some $630 million of the more than $2 billion accumulated in decommissioning trust funds to manage the canisters of spent fuel, which will remain on the 240-acre site after the shutdown and into the foreseeable future. State officials say spent fuel management is the responsibility of the federal government, which has failed to find a repository for the nation's nuclear waste, despite promises dating back to the 1980s. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is considering extension of operating licenses for nuclear reactors to 100 years. Realize that when nuclear reactors were first built, they were only licensed for 40 years because, in the estimation of the engineers who designed and built them, that was the limit of how long they could be safely operated. And that's because the constant bombardment of the containment structure by neutrons and split atoms would weaken, or imbrittle, as the term is used, the containment structure, making deadly leaks of radiation and accidents progressively more possible. When I first began Nuclear Hot Seat in 2011, the industry was propagandizing for license extensions of 20 years with the slogan, Is there life after 60? They'd already gotten the 20 years in addition to the 40. But now they're asking, Is there life after 80? The answer by all sane people should be a resounding no, not only because of the advanced age and embrittlement of the reactors, but the fact that they have been in recent years jury-rigged, or upgraded as they call it in the industry, to generate more electricity, meaning that they burn hotter and harder, further flirting with disaster. To follow this issue, we will link to Carl Grossman's ever-excellent reporting on it with the suggestion that you sign up for his email updates. Our link will be on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 501. In upstate New York, the Army Corps of Engineers has disclosed the discovery of plutonium and other radioactive materials in samples of soil and groundwater in Niagara County, near Niagara Falls, Buffalo, and near the shores of Lake Ontario. The Niagara County field where the samples were taken is believed to have been the site of open-air burning of radioactive materials in the 1950s. Although the latest samples were taken in late 2018, the agency is still working on a report about how serious the finds are and what to do about them. In addition to plutonium, uranium, radium, thorium, cesium, and strontium have been discovered in the soil samples and groundwater samples showed both radium and uranium, as well as a small, quote-unquote, amount of plutonium. This was a World War II explosives manufacturing site that later became an unofficial nuclear waste disposal site. And NHK, the Japanese public broadcasting network, has learned that the United States conducted a subcritical nuclear test in November of 2020 at a nuclear test site in the state of Nevada. Subcritical nuclear tests 
do not produce explosions, but is a term used to describe the process of testing component pieces of a nuclear bomb. In Japan, two children who were infants at the time of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster in 2011 have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer. They were two years old, and the other was under one year old at the time of the accident. Following a fourth round of thyroid examinations, the number of children diagnosed with suspected thyroid cancer increased by six from the previous time to 27, and the number of children who underwent thyroidectomy increased by three from the previous time to 16 children. Up to now, 252 patients have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer or suspected thyroid cancer from previous examinations, of which 203 have undergone thyroid surgery, and all but one were confirmed to have thyroid cancer. Now, these are the official numbers, and they are very depressed. They've been put forth by Japan and by their medical establishment from information that has been manipulated, diminish the numbers, and thus diminish public concern and awareness. To learn the specifics of how this was done, listen to Nuclear Hot Seat number 498 from three weeks ago, January 5th, 2021, and the interview with Dr. Alex Rosen, a pediatrician and one of the heads of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW, based in Germany. His report on this manipulation of studies was an unexpected eye-opener. But still, that's not the end of this story, because... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. The review committee for this thyroid test, which has found more than 200 people with thyroid cancer, raises the theory of what's being called Overdiagnosis, put that in quotes. And this is what is being said among the so called experts who deny the effects of radiation exposure. They say that they are finding thyroid cancer that they do not have to find. And there is growing opinion that the mass examination of school should be reviewed, in other words, canceled. Shoichiro Tsugane, a member of the National Cancer Center, said, the discovery of thyroid cancer has little benefit in avoiding death or poor quality of life, especially when you are diagnosed with thyroid cancer. I think it will be a huge disadvantage for those who do. Thyroid examination in a group of asymptomatic healthy people is not desirable. What? You've not heard of diagnostic testing? And it gets worse because members of the Prefectural Health Investigation Committee, especially members who reside outside of Fukushima Prefecture, are calling for the cancellation or reduction of examinations because, hey, when you have a radiation-induced public health crisis, the last thing you want is verifiable data as evidence that confirms that the problem is just as bad as people thought, if not worse. In truth, Thyroid cancer has recurrence and metastasis, and early detection and early treatment are beneficial for the child. And that's why you miserable, duplicitous members of the Prefectural Health Investigation Committee in Japan, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. In Fukushima Prefecture, residents of Tomioka 
have demanded stricter decontamination levels to enable them to safely return if such a thing is possible. In surveys conducted by the Reconstruction Agency of Japan last fall, Tomioka residents listed important conditions in deciding whether they would return to their hometown or not, such as reopening and construction of new medical, welfare, and elder care facilities, as well as the resumption and improvement of shopping complexes. But outweighing all of them is the condition that a further reduction in the amount of radiation is necessary. The government has set the annual radiation exposure limit to 20 millisieverts as one of the standards to lift the evacuation order. But residents have been raising concerns about this condition and are demanding a higher standard and more decontamination. The government is working to attract about 1,600 people to live in the town, which is only 40% of the population before the accident. The former residents are asking for decontamination with the aim of lowering the annual radiation exposure to one millisievert or less. On Monday, January 21st, the Tokyo High Court ordered Tokyo Electric Power Company, the operators of the crippled Fukushima power plant, to pay damages to evacuated residents, but it overturned an earlier ruling that had also acknowledged the central government's responsibility over the 2011 nuclear crisis. Among the approximately 30 such lawsuits around the country, the decision of the Tokyo High Court was the first High Court ruling absolving the state of responsibilities. In the ruling, it stated, the government's failure to instruct TEPCO to take measures against tsunamis, quote, is not found to be significantly unreasonable. Instead of having the Japanese government pay damages to the evacuees, the high court ordered TEPCO to pay a total of just under 120 million Japanese yen, the equivalent of around 1,157,000 U.S. dollars to 90 plaintiffs more than triple the amount awarded in the lower court ruling. Regarding TEPCO's oft-announced and oft-delayed and then announced again intention to release the radioactive water stored at Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean, there is now a petition put forth by No Nukes Asia Forum Japan. The subject is the International Signature Campaign, against the discharge of contaminated water and calling for the discontinuation of nuclear power plants now. We will have a link up to this petition, which the signature drive starts as of February 1st, but we'll have it up on the website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 501. In France, according to the newspaper Le Monde, the stock of EDF, the largest nuclear operator in Europe, has collapsed. The French group is engaged in a vast reorganization project contested by the company's unions. For months, France has been pleading with the European Commission for a reform of the complex system which requires EDF to resell part of its production to its competitors. Called regulated access to historic nuclear electricity, it forces the energy company to resell a quarter of its nuclear production at a fixed price, which it claims is causing it to lose money. Apparently, its stockholders agreed and have been dumping the stock. In Germany, a call for Berlin to renew its commitment to NATO's nuclear defense in a gesture of solidarity with the United States has prompted a heated backlash among Germany's Greens, 
the party seen as the likely kingmaker in the country's next government. A high-profile group of German and American academics and strategy advisors delivered the NATO call in a more than 8,000-word paper entitled, More Ambition, Please. It read in part, Without this alliance, meaning NATO, a stable and united Europe cannot be sustained, and neither can the international order be renewed. However, these conclusions are particularly contentious in the Green Party, which has never abandoned its pacifist anti-war roots. Support for the transatlantic declaration by moderate forces in the party triggered a fierce reaction by leading members of the Greens' left wing, underscoring the difficulty that lies ahead for the Biden administration as it seeks to repair and renew America's strategic bonds in Europe following the divisive Trump years. In Turkey, an explosion took place on the evening of January 19 at the Ikuyu nuclear power plant which is under construction, that broke windows in the houses and cars in the surrounding areas. Details of the incident have not been shared, and the question remains as to whether the explosion had damaged the ground where the reactors are intended to be placed, the plant construction, or had harmed employees. According to Pinar Demirkan, coordinator for NuclearSys.org, According to Pinar Demirkan, coordinator for NuclearSys.org, an anti-nuclear group, in Akuyu, information is not shared transparently and is itself a source of safety hazard. Cracks have been formed at the base of the reactor constructions, and there has been water leakage in the construction area in recent days. The explosion was recorded as a 1.2 magnitude earthquake, and at least 86 houses were damaged. Demir Khan stated that if it was expected to cause an effect of 1.2 magnitude earthquake, they should tell why the people in the region were not warned in advance. And if this was planned, she said, we want to know what is unplanned. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, the doomsday clock nailed it. We, as a planetary society, are in no better shape to survive ultimate annihilation now than we were one year ago. And whatever happens this year in government or science, nuclear problems are going to continue to be with us forever. The entire nuclear fuel chain is being supported by a nuclear fool chain. Those individuals in government and business who don't care how they contaminate the world as long as they make enough money, money, money to buy $4.1 million cars and other diversions. Uh, That would be the son of the head of Holtec who has that car. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination, from uranium mining, manufacture of fuel rods and plutonium pits, transport, reactor operation, forever radioactive waste with no way to safely store it, the environmental racism, plus the overriding planetary life-ending Big Bang threat of weapons. Quite frankly, nuclear is a mess. And that's why you need a nuclear hot seat. While mainstream media has other agendas, we know where to look for the nuclear story and the questions to ask every week so we can report the ongoing evolving nuclear truth that the industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. And that's why the time would be right now for you to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. We just hit episode number 500 last week, so a penny an episode, 
a dime an episode, a dollar an episode. Choose what's right for you. And please do what you can now. Knowing that however much you can help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Voices in protest of nuclear transgressions are often hard to find or to hear. And once raised, they can easily be hidden or ignored as they fade from awareness. That's why books that compile these stories and make them available to the public are of such crucial importance as we continue to investigate and educate ourselves about our shared nuclear history and future. That's why we're happy to bring to your awareness a relatively new book of importance to anyone who lives downwind of any nuclear facility. Actually, we're all downwinders these days, but especially the Hanford site in Washington State. The Hanford Plaintiffs, Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice, was published in 2020, written by Tricia Pritikin. She is an attorney and a Hanford downwinder. Tricia Pritikin and Karen Dorn Steele, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking with you because this is about your book, Tricia, called The Hanford Plaintiffs Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice. Tricia, start out by telling us what is the Hanford Reservation? Where is it? And what was it intended to do? Hanford is located in South Central Washington State, and it was a nuclear weapons production facility. It's located on the Columbia River. It's where the plutonium was produced for the very first, the world's first test of an atomic bomb, the Trinity test, detonated July 16, 1945, and for the bomb, the Fat Man bomb that decimated Nagasaki. Hanford's plutonium was also used in many of the tests, both at the Nevada test site and in the Pacific Proving Grounds. And as we know, showered downwinders with fallout. It's not any longer a nuclear weapons production facility, but it's one of the most toxic sites in the country, as you know. We've covered it many times on Nuclear Hot Seat from different angles, but this is a very personal story. Tell us about your background and how you grew up in proximity to Hanford. Both my parents were workers at Hanford. My father was a nuclear engineer who oversaw the reactors in the 100 area, which is where all the eight to nine reactors were located. My mother worked in something called stores. She was the secretary for a while until she got pregnant with me, and then she quit. So I was born at Cadillac Hospital in Richland in late 1950. And the reason I tell you the year is that that is really important because the levels of radiation being secretly released from Hanford were much higher in the beginning from its startup in late 1944 through the 50s and into the early 60s. They were much higher than they were later. So I was born during a period where there was a lot of secretly released radiation in the air, water, on the food, in the milk, we later found out. So I lived in Richland, and I loved it. Uh, a lot of the kids have really fond memories of Richland because the Atomic Energy Commission and Hanford operators put a lot of money into making sure 
its employees in Richland were happy, that they had cultural events, that their kids were happy with the schools. And we had quite a few teachers who came in from Oak Ridge. So I kind of picked up a bit of a, a Tennessee accent. But I have really fond memories of Richland and my friends there. So on the surface, everything seemed to be fine and going well, and it was the American dream of middle-class life and raising your kids. Yes. You have stated that you believe that your family's time in Richland next to Hanford resulted in health damage to them. What were or are the kind of problems that they and you have faced? My dad died of aggressive thyroid cancer, which has been associated with radiation exposure under the U.S. Nuclear Worker Compensation Act. And I bring that up because I think it's very pertinent to the Downlanders experience. My mother died of malignant melanoma, which is also associated with radiation exposure, but requires a dose reconstruction by the employee when claiming for damages under the Nuclear Worker Compensation Act. My mother also developed autoimmune thyroiditis, hyperparathyroidism, which means way too much calcium in the blood everywhere, but she did die of malignant melanoma. I have, kernel cells were detected in a nodule that developed on my thyroid. Kernel cell thyroid cancer is one of the types of cancer that has been found in downwinders. So my thyroid was removed and I lost three of four parathyroid glands during the surgery because I had such an inflamed thyroid. It was autoimmune thyroiditis. So I had an inflamed thyroid. They lost three of four. So now I have something called hypoparathyroidism, which causes tetany, paralysis, and kidney failure if you're not extremely careful. I mean, I have to be very careful what I eat and be monitored all the time. And my brother died in 1947. He's part of a spike of neonatal deaths in the downwind area that still needs to be investigated. There are baby graves in, at the historic cemetery in Richland. There are baby graves in Pasco in the historic cemetery and a lot of baby graves in Walla Walla, which is known to be a hot spot. I'm so sorry you and your family went through all of that. And you attribute this to the proximity to Hanford. I do because over 750,000 curies of radioiodine were released from Hanford. And there've been many epidemiologic studies of similar populations that showed thyroid outcomes, thyroid cancer outcomes, uh, hyper-hypothyroid. As to the other disease, malignant melanoma, it's been associated with radiation exposure in the Nuclear Worker Compensation Act. So that's why I believe that these diseases were caused by Hanford. Karen, are you from the Hanford area and did you grow up there? And if not, how did you get to Hanford? I was born in Portland, Oregon. My father was a U.S. diplomat, so I lived in in North Africa and Europe as a child. But the way I got to the Hanford story was through a job I'd taken recently in the early 80s at the Spokesman Review, which is a regional newspaper in, in Spokane, where I live. Before that, I'd worked in Congress. I'd had my own public affairs show on PBS in Spokane, but they recruited me to do investigative reporting, basically. And this was the early 80s. It was the Reagan administration. And Ronald Reagan had recently announced a major nuclear arms buildup to counter the Soviet Union. So he reopened a 1956 mothballed plutonium plant at Hanford called Purex. And one of my first experiences with covering Hanford was from a whistleblower who called me and was very concerned about safety in this plant. She said plutonium was missing. It might have been backing up in the corners of the plant, which could have caused an explosion. And so that was my first task to try to verify her story. 
and it turned out to be completely accurate. They were having problems. Uh, she gave me the roadmap to report the story. She told me the documents I should look for. And you know, I did Freedom of Information Act request. I found out that they had been having problems they were very concerned about, but had not told the public. That prompted an FBI visit to my editor's office and lots of concerns about why was this paper in Spokane, Washington, suddenly so interested in plutonium production. So that was my start in uh, covering Hanford. And it led to my meeting a whole group of farmers who lived right across the river from Hanford and who were extremely concerned about possible exposure to radiation from Hanford, although they had no documents or no nothing to back it up at that time, which was in the mid-1980s. When you say farmers, were they growing crops? Did they have animals? Did they have dairy cows? What was the nature of the farming involved? Yes, it was an area called the Waluki Slope, uh, right across from Hanford on the eastern side of the Columbia River. They were growing all kinds of crops, corn, wheat. They had cattle, they had sheep, and they were people who had been brought in in the 50s to populate this area. They were given government land. This land was opened up. And so they had uh, been living right across from Hanford, and they had some vivid tales about things they had observed in their own neighborhoods, like people in dressed in moon suits coming through and picking up things from their fields who were from the Atomic Energy Commission, but didn't ever tell the farmers just what they were doing there. They were there to collect samples, but the farmers never um, learned what the samples were for. And so I met a farmer named Tom Bailey, who has become kind of the voice, the face of this whole downwinder story in the mid-1980s and took his stories from there. So the farmers were given free land or very inexpensive land in exchange for being guinea pigs for what the impact was from any of the radiation that got off the reservation. What information challenges did you have initially when trying to verify the stories of the downwinder farmers? Initially, they had told me about having massive sheep die-offs in the early 60s where the lambs were born mummified. There had to be a paper trail on that, so there was one of them. The other big question was how the farmers themselves and their families been affected. And when I started looking for documents, I was shocked to discover that most of the documents that would have detailed any releases from the 40s and 50s especially were still classified. This is 40 years after the end of World War II. And so I used the leverage of the Freedom of Information Act to obtain documents on exposure to the farming communities downwind. And as it turned out, this was in 1985, and other reporters in the region were also working the story by then, and a group in Spokane called the Hanford Education Act, which was a citizen activist group. And we prepared fairly massive Freedom of Information Acts to the Department of Energy. And in February 1986, with some some pressure from our congressional delegation, as well as a series of stories, my stories and some others, U.S. Department of Energy released its first batch of 19,000 pages of documents. And they, after being having told the region for years that Hanford had been completely safe and there had been 
minimal releases, it turned out that there had been massive releases, as Tricia noted, uh, 750,000 curies of radiation of radioactive iodine, plus other process upsets where ruthenium flakes had rained down on the farmer's fields. And so this completely changed the narrative as to what Hanford's history had been, especially in in the Cold War. One of the most uh, shocking documents in that first batch was something called the Green Run. I stumbled on these documents. I was first to break the story of the Green Run, which was a deliberate experiment at Hanford in 1949, in which the operators were told by the military to take all the filters off one of the plutonium plants at Hanford and release very hot radioactive particles into the atmosphere, which the Air Force secretly tracked in airplanes. And the reason they wanted to do this, this was December of 1941, and Joseph Stalin had just detonated one of the first nuclear weapons in the Soviet Union. And they thought if they assumed that the Soviets were using hot or green fuel, that's why they called this the Green Run, to uh, rush to catch up with us in their plutonium enterprise. And so they thought they could devise a measuring device using Hanford and the Inland Northwest as an experiment, as an experimental lab, but without telling anybody in the region. This was an area which some of it down by Walla Walla, there were cows on grass even in December. And the weather was very bad the day they did the green run, December 2nd, 1949. And so there was a big rain out or snow out in the region where a lot of the radiation came down to the ground. And this really shocked people, shocked our readers, our congressman, who was quite prominent, Tom Foley, he went on later to become Speaker of the House of Representatives. He had a classified briefing in it, on it, and the public wanted more answers. Why did this happen? Why were they never told? Karen, you were writing for, admittedly, a small newspaper, the Spokane Review in Spokane, Washington. When these stories started coming out and being of such magnitude, Were they supportive of your work? Well, initially, before I met the uh, Downwinder farmers, they were rather skeptical. They said, well, you know, Hanford has always told us that everything is safe there. Where's the story? And so it wasn't until I started getting documents, first for the Purex, you know, the dangers at the Purex plant, and later for the direct exposures in the area where the, where the farmers suspected they'd been exposed. And then the Green Run, the Green Run story, I think, changed everything because it was nobody knew that there had been a direct uh human experiment conducted in 1949 on the the citizens of the Northwest. And so gradually my editors said, just go for it, you know, and it was odd though. It was hard for them initially because our paper, which had a a circulation of about 130,000 at the time, had never really covered Hanford. They just you know, published associated press stories on openings of plants and closing of plants at Hanford. So it was a whole new role for our newspaper. And we really had good support. Our editorials were very strong on calling for openness and telling the whole story of what happened. They were sort of uh, the downwinders telling their stories. We had a wonderful cartoonist, Milt Priggy, who did some sensational work on the Hanford story. And so the newspaper really stepped up and became a force in the region for for telling the story. And we had this very, as I say, this very prominent congressman who helped too, Tom Foley, who pressed the government to have classified hearings for them and to to get to the bottom of some of this. You know, Congress had been pretty passed throughout the nuclear age in challenging the Atomic Energy Commission or the nuclear establishment. So it helped to have at least one congressman who was prominent and who was interested. 
with all this information coming out, as shocking as it was, how were people reacting to it? And specifically, what reaction did your newspaper get to all this negative reporting on Hanford? Well, I got some death threats at home, just, you know, I mean, you know, threats both to me and my children. There was criticism of my newspaper by the newspaper in the Tri-Cities, the Richland, uh, Kennewick and Pasco, where Hanford is located. It's called the Tri-City Herald. It's been very, very pro-nuclear its entire time. Really never did any kind of critical reporting on Hanford. And they kind of tried to portray us and me as unpatriotic. You know, here's Ronald Reagan starting a new nuclear arms race and you are not being patriotic. You're not getting with the program. So that was the message that came out of the Tri-Cities. But Washington State is very complex. I mean, Seattle is a very liberal city and was calling like we were in Spokane for more openness, more accountability for the complete story of the documents to come out and for the downwinders to be able to tell their stories. But the story was not popular in the Tri-Cities where Hanford is. Tricia, at what point did you get the idea to write a book and how did you proceed to move forward on it? Well, first, I wanted to mention something that I hadn't mentioned before, which was the reason I learned about Hanford's radiation releases was that I was visiting my grandmother in Spokane in 1988 and read one of Karen's articles in the Spokesman Review. I feel that had it not been for her reporting, this whole story about uh, the releases may have never come out. And so I feel the diameters and all of us owe Karen a lot. You know, that's I'll always feel that way. She's my hero. She's very brave and she's really a good writer and gets right to the point. So I wanted to put that in there real quickly so I didn't forget. Thank you for that because that's a key piece and the importance of reporters is never to be underestimated. You're like the fourth branch of the government. Yes. And I felt whenever Karen was at a meeting that I was attending with like government officials flying over from CDC or from... ATSDR or whatever. If Karen was there, I knew the truth was going to come out about this meeting and she would help me figure out what in the heck was going on. Because <laughs> a lot of time it was very confusing. You had so many scientists giving us various lectures on things and showing us PowerPoints and then leaving. So I was always thankful when I saw Karen there in the front row with her red hair, beautiful red hair, sitting in the, I did not want our stories, the Dalmater stories to be forgotten. And when the litigation concluded, with settlements for some people. This is uh, Henry Hanford nuclear reservation litigation, which was mass toxic tort personal injury litigation. The last settlements came out in 2015. There were only one set of bellwether trials in 2005, positive jury verdicts for two plaintiffs with thyroid cancer. But that the rest of the people, anybody else who got anything, it was a settlement, very meager settlements. They're so small that people were crying on the phone with their attorneys. It was that bad. So I decided, okay, litigation's over. This is 2015. Our stories are going to be forgotten. And the Department of Energy will have succeeded in sweeping everything under the rug. There were 5,000 original plaintiffs. And of those, two of them got to tell their stories during the litigation. And that's it. And so all these other stories were still out there. And if the public had heard our stories all at once or even a small, you know, a partial portion of them, they would be shocked and indignant at what had happened to the people of the Pacific Northwest. So I decided I would quickly contact two of the plaintiff's attorneys, that's Tom Folds in Seattle 
and Dick Iman in Spokane and asked whether I could send a letter to the final people that were receiving settlements to ask if they'd like to participate in this project. That's how I located these people. Otherwise, you don't, I had lost contact with almost everybody except I knew where Tom Bailey was, but everybody else it had been so long since the beginning of the litigation, 25 years, that people had either died or they weren't available. So that's how I found people. What were the commonalities in the stories that you were getting from these people? First thing I learned was none of them were rich. They were all semi-impoverished, including myself. It's because if you're that disabled and sick, you have a hard time earning an income. These are people who are not rich. And all of them wanted our stories told. And they were very enthusiastic about us putting our stories together. Because with multiple stories, you gain power. Whereas with one story, it's interesting, but not as powerful. Because a lot of these people had thyroid cancer or thyroid disease. I saw that all over the place. I want to say there were river cancer plaintiffs as well, people who had been exposed to the river pathway that had other types of cancers. A few of them got settlements, not a lot. So back to the people I saw, almost everyone had more than one problem. They had thyroid cancer plus autoimmune thyroiditis plus chronic fatigue plus a fibromyalgic type of problem. It was more of a cluster than it was one disease. And I know Kate Brown has mentioned this in her book, Plutopia, as a like a radiation syndrome. You know, if you're exposed as a child, it can do multiple harms to you. Some of the people have children with issues as well. One of the people I interviewed, Bob McCormick, is the first story in the book. He's had so many cancers in his family and the children of the downlanders, the original people that were exposed, also have issues. So I noticed that as well. It's devastating to think of the impact and that it's been ongoing. Do you still get stories from more people now who perhaps weren't involved in the litigation, but are having these problems and are coming to the awareness of a possible source? Yes, you know, that's a great question, and it focuses on the latency periods. Like, if you're exposed to low-dose ionizing radiation, decades can pass before the symptoms of your resulting disease show up. I've had people contact me after this book was out there saying, I think I'm a downwinder. I just realized, you know, I lived here in the downwind area, and I have this cancer, and I feel terrible for them because... There aren't going to be any attorneys who are going to represent these people now. It was so hard for our attorneys to support our litigation for 24 years out of personal funds against the power of the federal government because the contractors that we sued were indemnified under Price-Anderson and they had free-flowing federal money, our own tax dollars, <laughs> to defend against our actions. So what attorney in his or her right mind would want to take on one of these cases? So it's really hard for me to have to say that to people because they just didn't learn. For some reason, they didn't hear about Hanford. Maybe they were living somewhere else. I don't know. Maybe they didn't have any health problems till right now. But yeah, you're right that people are still developing these problems. How do you think Hanford officials were able to keep most information about accidents and routine releases secret or confidential for as long as they did, which looks like it's at least 40 years that they were able to keep it under wraps? I would give that one to Karen. Thanks, Tricia. Well, first of all, in the uh, 40s and 50s, 
there was almost complete secrecy about the nuclear weapons program. The Atomic Energy Commission basically had a policy with anybody that claimed exposures of never admit and never pay. It happened with the, at the Nevada test site. It happened in the Marshall Islands. It happened at Hanford. It happened everywhere in the country where there was a nuclear facility or where there was fallout. And that was the attitude. And this battle over openness versus secrecy was, was really playing out in the 1980s. I recall that Energy Secretary James Watkins, who was the Energy Secretary to Ronald Reagan, said that if we ever really tell, they were, they were trying to decide, should they, because there was public pressure now, should we release some of these documents? And he was saying, if we do that, that will mean the end of nuclear weapons production if the public really finds out what happened. And that was a very telling remark. We got his memo and published it when he said that, because this was just at the time when we were trying to get more information about Hanford. And so these were powerful, powerful institutions, judges in Nevada that Tricia has written about, who tried to get some level of justice for both sheep herders who'd lost their sheep and people who got cancer were overruled by appellate courts and uh, stymied by acts in Congress that protected the contract. Contractors. So this is a very, very difficult arena to get accountability and the truth. In your view, what is Congress's role in overseeing the nuclear weapons makers at Hanford? And why couldn't Washington state officials do more to interject and oversee what was going on? Washington state officials, at least in the early days, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, were almost completely stymied. They couldn't even go on the nuclear reservation without signing a release. The scientists of the Public Health Service who studied releases in the Columbia River were muzzled when radioactive oysters showed up at Willapa Bay on the Olympic Peninsula. They were censored from letting the public know. One of the first downwinders I met in Tom Bailey's area was a man who worked for the Pasco Water District. He had a PhD and he found out that there was radioactive phosphorus uh, that the fish that he was feeding his children were eating. There was radioactive phosphorus in the river that was uh, moving through the food chain, but he could not tell. He, he told me he stopped feeding his children fish immediately when he read the confidential memo, but he couldn't tell his neighbors because he would have been fired from his job. And so they're at, at every level of the health agencies we like to think of as protecting our health and our environment were stymied from telling the real story about what was going on at Hanford. What about today? Certainly, we know that plutonium has got a half-life of 24,000 years, so it's not disappearing from the environment. What are or what is known about the ongoing dangers that still exist in the Hanford area? Quite a bit by now is known. I mean, we know that chromium and radioactive substances leaked into the Columbia River. There's been a massive cleanup program going on for about the last 15 years. It was initially supposed to cost $50 billion and last 50 years. And now it's over a $100 billion estimate and it's going to last much longer than 50 years. So they have quantified the problems, but some of the solutions are still just not effective. They're still wasting money at Hanford. They are not achieving, in my opinion, a, a full cleanup. In fact, there never will be a full cleanup. It's impossible. But they can protect the river. And they no longer have 
airborne releases because there are no plants operating, except there is still danger to workers who are working on the cleanup and occasionally will run across plutonium or some other volatile chemical substance that causes injuries. So to workers in the cleanup, there's still a big problem there. I wanted to mention also that the plutonium finishing plant was being demolished recently without a containment dome over it. And they were starting to find tiny particles of plutonium in the air filters in cars in in Richland. So, you know, that was a kind of an exception to what Karen was saying. I mean, we all were there at the time doing a project with the group I work with, Core Consequences of Radiation Exposure. We brought Matsuji Moraguchi over from Nagasaki and we were all wearing C-100 masks to protect us from the plutonium flakes. Whereas the people in the city were like, ah, there's no problem. Oh, what you worried about? Yeah. That once in a while, something like that happens too. Do either of you have any thoughts on what alternatives might exist to litigation for people who have been exposed downwind of nuclear weapons production or testing sites? I have an idea, which I am proposing whenever anyone asks. I'm trying to spread it broadly. Rather than having communities that were exposed to low-dose ionizing radiation or who were involved in uranium mining or were downwind of the Trinity test site or Nevada test site, fighting over the expansion of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, I would like to see a national approach to this problem modeled on the EEOICPA, Energy Employees Illness Occupational Compensation Program Act, the Nuclear Workers' Compensation Act, because it contains a list of diseases identified as radiogenic for which people, nuclear workers at many sites don't even have to have dose reconstruction. They live in, they have special exposure cohorts like at Hanford, where if you file a claim for a certain cancer like thyroid cancer, like my dad's cancer, no dose reconstruction is required. You're given the benefit of the doubt. There's a very broad probability of causation. It's just really easier for the nuclear workers than it is for the downwinders. We were children when we were exposed. We had no choice. We didn't enter into an employment agreement as a nuclear worker. You know, it's like, it seems like the, the children should be given more benefit of the doubt than the adult workers. So I would like to see people who are civilians who live next to any of the waste sites, the production sites, the testing sites, including the Marshall Islands where the U.S. tested, to be eligible for compensation and healthcare if they don't have adequate healthcare for diseases that are identified under the EOICPA as radiation related. If those people live for a minimum period of time when radiation was documented to have been released, so the same standards as for workers. I'm just so tired of hearing communities fighting with each other over whether RICA will be expanded to them. I would also like to see more recognition of the fact that so many people were exposed nationwide, actually worldwide. Kate Brown has has expressed this in her book, Plutopia, that in a way, all of us are downwinders, or many of us are downwinders, and have this incorporated into the history of the nuclear age. For instance, when you visit now, now a B reactor at Hanford, which was the first full-scale nuclear reactor in the world, now it's part of the National Park Service, and its tours are open. You can go through it. And the story, they're, they're very good explanations of how they made the first plutonium, but it's presented as this 
really nifty engineering project, you know, but this facility produced the bomb that was dropped on civilians in Nagasaki. And the other part of the story is not being told what the downwind, not only the victims in Nagasaki, but downwinders throughout the world sacrificed for the nuclear weapons program. I think it's a very cautionary tale if we ever try this venture again and uh, once again start to make nuclear weapons. I think it's ironic and hopeful that today is the day that we are talking is the same day that the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, the nuclear weapons ban takes force of law internationally. There have been several celebrations in the course of the day. So this hopefully is a marker day where we can pivot and turn everything around so that the necessary changes take place. We never face this kind of difficulty again. Our stories, stories of health damage, actual health damage, are the strongest evidence for why nuclear weapons have no place in this world. Right. It's not just the big bang fireball, ooh, my bang's bigger than your bang kind of a thing, but it is the lasting legacy of anything nuclear, which is the radiation and the damage that it does down through generations forever, virtually forever. 24,000 years is a long time. One last thing, Tricia. You mentioned this once, and I noticed from the back cover of your book that net proceeds from the book will go to a nonprofit called Consequences of Radiation Exposure, or CORE. Tell us a little bit about that group, which you did mention before, and where we can find their website. That group is a nonprofit in Washington State. It's also an IRS 501c3 tax-exempt organization, so any donations to it are tax-exempt. Or, you know. It was formed in 2015 at the conclusion of the litigation to educate the public about the consequences of exposure to low-dose ionizing radiation, whether from nuclear weapons production, testing, uranium mining, milling, or transport, use of nuclear weapons in wartime. There are so many sites where people are suffering. And so we are just, our, it's an educational nonprofit. And as I said, we did have the, the project where we brought over the very first Hibakusha from Nagasaki to Hanford after so many years an official mission. So we try to do things like that. But thanks for asking. And the website is www.corehanford.org. We will have a link to that up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode. One final thing, your book has already received a number of acknowledgements. It placed first for history at the 2020 San Francisco Book Festival and first in nonfiction at the 2020 New England Book Festival. So the book is The Hanford Plaintiffs, Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice. Where can people find it? I love to support local bookstores. So if you can alert your local bookstore that it exists and that you would like to order a copy. We've had book launch events with our aunties in Spokane. It's available from there. UW Bookstore in Seattle. It's on Amazon, but I just love supporting local bookstores. So that's where I would go. I would suggest if anybody goes to order it at a local bookstore, you ask that they order two. So there's one on the shelf for the next person to grab. Yes, that's great. Trisha Pritikin and Karen Dorn Steele, your words have made a tremendous impact on the world. And you've now left a legacy of knowledge for others to learn from and build upon. And I really want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank so much. you. That was Trisha Pritikin, the author of 
The Hanford Plaintiffs, Voices from the Fight for Atomic Justice, and investigative journalist Karen Dorn Steele, who wrote the introduction to the book. Activists, Activists shout out, shout out, shout out. Wednesday, January 27, marks both the National Downwinders Day of Remembrance and the International Holocaust Survivors Day of Remembrance. Somebody really needs to compile a calendar so that these important commemorations don't step on each other's toes. But as regarding Downwinders, Utah PBS has a new documentary entitled Downwinders and the Radioactive West. It premieres on Wednesday, January 27 on Utah PBS. Check your local PBS station to see if it's scheduled, and if not, feel free to call their programming department and request that they carry it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 26, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign for the Evolution of Nuclear Weapons, HealUtah.org, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, NHK.or.jp, BuffaloNews.com, Lohud.com, OpEdNews.com, OurPlanet-TV.org, JapanTimes.co.jp, KnoxNews.com, Asahi.com, No Nukes Asia Forum Japan, KyotoNews.net, Politico.eu, YesilGazette.org, NEIMagazine.com, whiteheavennews.co.uk, and the ever-co-opted, regulatory-captured, really inefficient Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, we really appreciated the outpouring of support that came following last week's episode number 500. Thanks to all of you who helped us out. And know that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, any time is the right time, including right now, to take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red button, click on it, follow the prompts, and help us out. Know that the intention is to keep this show running for as long as it's needed, which, with plutonium having a half-life of 24,000 years, is going to be for at least a couple more weeks or months or years or millennia. And if you want to make certain you get each week's episode as soon as it is hot off the digital presses, go to the website and sign up for one email a week, which will have the link, a brief pricey of what's in there. And this is a feature you may not know about. There is a tweet-length post that you can copy and paste that will work on Twitter, Facebook, any place else you can possibly put it on the internet. That's NuclearHotSeat.com. Look for the yellow opt-in box and just fill in your first name and email address. We won't bug you. We don't send you lots of stuff. We don't do marketing. We just send you the show because it's important that you be kept up to date. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that since last Friday, January 22nd, nuclear weapons are illegal everywhere in the world. And now we have to get rid of the ones that we've got. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in that nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.